0: Hey everybody, my name is Dr. Jones and you are listening to the Books of Pro Wrestling Podcast. This is a new show, more of a book club for us wrestling fans to get together each week to talk about the stories behind the legends and superstars. So for years now, so many of these superstars that we've grown up watching and these factions and these larger-than-life characters, they've been writing New York Times best-selling books. Some of you have read a lot of these books. Some of you may be new to all of this. But what I wanted to do is create a book club for us wrestling fans to get together every week, to talk about, to debate, to share stories. Thank you so much for downloading today's episode. I also want to encourage you, please hit that subscribe button. That's That way we can grow this podcast together, we can grow this book club together. The more people we have, the more topics we can discuss, the more debates we can have, all in fun. And you know what? I just wanted to create a show that really is all about having fun. I wanted to be different from the other wrestling podcasts out there. I'm a big fan of podcasts. I'm a big fan of listening to wrestling podcasts. I love learning the history behind the superstars. So, I wanted to create a show that dives into these books. And the first book we're going to be looking at is Heartbreak and Triumph, the Shawn Michaels story. It came out in 2005. Great book, by the way. So, for those of you following along, we're going to talk about the first several chapters. And the first several chapters just really, uh, they laid the groundwork for the reader to understand where Shawn came from what all he took part in, how he became a professional wrestler. He grew up in a household that moved around a lot. In other words, his father was in the Air Force. So, yeah, they had to move from place to place, city to city. He had to make new friends every time they moved, different schools, different situations. So you can kind of understand his mentality, always having to make new friends. He was born Michael Sean Hickenbottom. He hated that name. He was teased because of that name, and it really affected him because Sean was grew up a shy kid, an introvert. He wasn't the outspoken, charismatic superstar that we all watched on TV for so many years. Sean Michaels also is regarded as one of the greatest professional wrestlers in history. We know him as the Heartbreak Kid, Mr. WrestleMania, the Showstopper. Now, he earned these names because he is and was so great in the ring. Whether you liked Shawn Michaels or not, whether you hated him as his character, you can't deny his in-ring ability. Even his peers voted him at one point the greatest in-ring performer in history. Shawn Michaels was heavily influenced by several different athletes in the wrestling field, but one of his biggest influences, of course, was the nature boy, Ric Flair. We dive into that. We're gonna talk a little bit about his first meeting with Flair in just a little bit. Well, we know that Michaels wrestled consistently for the WWE from 1988 until his first retirement in 1998. Just a little less than a year from the big Montreal screw job that we'll also dive into. Now, if you're a casual wrestling fan and you're listening to today's show, you're gonna learn a lot. You're gonna learn a lot each week. And the stories behind the curtains, the stories beyond the ring that's what captivates me as a fan. So I'm coming at you from a fan perspective because I want to interact with other fans who are just as much interested in these stories as I am. And Shawn Michaels is no exception. He has so many incredible stories that he shares in this book that was came out in 2005. He has another book as well. But that's not the book we're covering We're covering Heartbreak and Triumph, the Shawn Michaels story. You can get it on Amazon.com. Many of you already have it and you're following along with me. But if you're just a listener, that's okay too, if you're not a big reader, because you're going to get just as much out of it as us that are reading the book, going through it together. But I do want to encourage you to download the book or go buy it at your local bookstore because it is that good. It is that good, no doubt about it. Well, after 1998, he had a few different wrestling roles in the WWE, but he came back in 2002 uh, before retiring again in 2010. And of course, now he's working with NXT, he's a trainer, best friends, of course, with Mr. Triple H. In the WWE, Michaels headlined many pay-per-view events. He did a lot. He also closed out WrestleMania in the main event Five times, and that's a feat many wrestlers will never see happen for themselves in their careers. Of course, he was one of the co-founders of Degeneration X, one of the most popular factions in wrestling history. I ranked that right up there with the NWO. He also wrestled for the AWA, the American Wrestling Association. We'll talk about that later. He also was a part of Mid-South Wrestling with Cowboy Bill Watts, and we dive into that in just a little bit. Shawn Michaels also won the Intercontinental Champion. He was the first Grand Slam Champion in WWE, four-time world champion. Uh, He won the Royal Rumble twice, and he's the first man to ever win the Royal Rumble who drew number one, the number one entrance, entrance. He is a two-time WWE Hall of Famer. Many wrestlers can't say that. He just got inducted, of course. If you follow WWE, last uh, earlier this month with Degeneration X, and of course he was inducted by himself in 2011 as Shawn Michaels. He's won Match of the Year before. Actually, he won Match of the Year in 2007 with John Cena, and that was ranked by the WWE as the best match ever aired on the company's flagship program, Raw. So put that in your Google machine, as Conrad Thompson would say, and check out that match with John Cena. Now, Shawn is one of my favorites of all time. I if He's in my top three at least, if not number one. Uh, Shawn Michaels was a... Fan favorite of mine when I was a kid. I first came into... Uh, I first got to know who Shawn Michaels was with the Rockers in the WWE. I didn't know about the Midnight Rockers when he was in AWA. I wasn't, I, I just didn't watch it. But it was around when I was a kid. But more so, it was the Rockers that captivated me. The Rockers with Marty Gennetti, which we're going to talk about a lot in this show. He was a high flyer, him and Marty. And that, to me, as a kid, and they just they looked cool. They had the cool uh, wrestling clothes. They, they were young and hip, and like I said, they were high flying. They, they were doing things that I hadn't seen before. And I remember as a little kid, I was a big fan, as many of you listening were as well, I'm sure. But as we dive into the book, we're going to look at different stories that he tells uh, the influence of the Rock and Roll Express on the Rockers. We'll talk about his meeting him meeting up with Terry Taylor. We know him as the Red Rooster with Bobby Heenan. Terry had a big influence on Sean's career as well. But something I wanted to dive into first is the prologue of the book. Now the prologue is something that Uh, It really lays the groundwork, the foundation for what we are going to see in the book. And this prologue captivated me enough to reread this book, because I've already went through it once, but I'm rereading it again because some of you are, and I want to go through this together and talk about it. Now, I'm going to read a little bit of this prologue. And I'm going to read different sections of it that stood out to me that really, like I said, lays the groundwork for this incredible book. He says, the day you win the WWF championship, it should be the happiest of your life. It's a reward for all of the hard work you've put into your job and the recognition that you are one, if not the best at what you do. Okay? Okay. So, what he's saying is, he, he's, he's preparing us for what we're about to read, the Montreal Screwjob. Now, for the casual wrestling fan listening, you may not understand, this was a real-life event. This wasn't scripted. And for me and you, who are avid Fans and we've we've grown up and we know about this. We've heard it heard it many times, the Montreal screwdriver. We've heard both sides. Well, we're gonna listen to Sean's side of the story in the podcast straight from his mouth. And it's so captivating that you are going to be all ears listening in. He says, Tonight I was gonna win the championship for a third time. Only this time I knew. There would be no celebrating, no happy or peaceful moments, no dreams fulfilled. There might be some angry words, a fight, maybe even a riot might break out. Whatever was going to happen, I knew it wasn't going to be good. Something big was about to go down in Montreal, and I was going to be at the center of it. Vince McMahon wanted Bret Hart to drop the WWF championship to me. Bret, a native of Calgary, Alberta, Canada, He didn't want to. Brett believed he was the hero in his country. And if he lost that wrestling match in Canada, the country's collected psyche might shatter. I am being totally serious here, Sean says. He also didn't like me or more accurately, he hated me. I didn't care for him either. Normally, these issues would not have caused any trouble. Vince was the boss, and whatever he said happened. So, Vince had a problem, though. Now, listen to this, and a lot of you know about this already, but for those of you uh, that don't really understand what took place in real life, here's what happened. Brett was leaving. He was leaving the WWF to wrestle for the rival company, WCW, World Championship Wrestling. And he had a creative control clause in his contract that basically allowed him to do what he wanted in his last 30 days. If Brett didn't want to lose the title, Brett wasn't going to lose the title. Or so he thought. The night before, Vince, myself, my friend and fellow superstar Triple H, and Jerry Briscoe, one of Vince's close associates, they met to confirm that we were going to swerve Brett out of the championship. He had left us no choice now we will be diving deep into that and what all of, and what that looks like okay uh, later on in uh, the book there's a time honor tradition the prologue continues in this business that when you leave one wrestling company to go to another you do the favor you lose on the way out It's a sign of respect and gratitude for those who have put you on top in the first place. Brett was leaving, but he was refusing to lose. For all we knew, he might take our championship down to WCW, make a mockery of it, and us. We couldn't afford to take the chance. Now, continuing on, Sean says, It may not seem like much to an outsider, but in the wrestling world, what we were going to do was the equivalent of a mafia hit. And I was going to be Jack Ruby. It may have been Vince's decision to swerve Brett out of the title, but I was going to be the one pulling the trigger. I had to figure out how it was going to happen, and I was going to be the one in the ring that everyone would see do it. Vince was going to try to do everything he could to put the focus and responsibility for the swerve on himself, but both he and I knew that I would catch most of the heat. Now, we will dive into that later in the podcast, and uh, it it won't be this week, but we will dive into it because it's part of the book. And it's actually a really important part and piece of wrestling history with the WWF now, or WWE. So, to, to give you more of a background or a foundation for what we're going to be talking about, This is what Sean says, and I think it's really cool. I suppose history will ultimately judge my place in this business, and I'm sure nearly every time my name is mentioned, Bret Hart, Montreal, and the match that changed the course of this industry will come up. And I'll get back to to Montreal, I promise. But there's a lot more to my life and career than my relationship with with Bret and that day in 1997. You've never heard my side of the story, but now, here it is. It has clicks, curtain calls, vacated titles, unwarranted suspensions. I'm going to tell you about tearing down houses and tearing up hotel rooms. You'll read about Vince McMahon, Marty Jannetty, Kevin Nash, and a whole lot of people you may not have known who have helped me along the way. I'll take you inside a ladder match, a hell in a cell, and a bloodbath in Vegas. I'll even toss in a little rock and roll and Graceland. You'll also learn about my family, my friends, how cultivating a personal relationship with Jesus Christ changed my life. Trust me, it's been one crazy ride. Then again, what else should I have expected? I wasn't supposed to be here in the first place. Now, uh, that kind of gives us a uh, just the, the groundwork. And for the first several chapters, Sean is... Uh, Telling us more about what got him into wrestling, his childhood, his uh, parents, where all he grew up, etc., etc. But I want to read this part from chapter 2 for those of you following along or who have read the book. And if you haven't, just check this out. He says, in between 7th and 8th grade, we moved off base. And one Saturday night, I was at home sitting around with nothing to do. I decided to turn the television on to pass the time. I wasn't looking for anything to watch in particular. I don't even remember flipping the channels to see what was on. I just turned on the television, and there it was. Southwest Championship Wrestling, SWCW. I had never seen or heard of wrestling before. But I was immediately and completely captivated by it. I saw wrestlers like Tully Blanchard and Wahoo McDaniel. Wahoo was the big Indian, and Tully was the number one bad guy. There was action, there was fighting, there was competition. It seemed like the coolest thing in the world. I watched the entire hour and then walked off to the kitchen where my mom was. Mom, I said to her with as much conviction as I could muster at the time, I want to be a professional wrestler. (laughs) So, we see that Sean's first experience and first uh, eye-opening experience to the world we know as WWE, WCW, was with Southwest Championship Wrestling and Tully Blanchard. Tully Blanchard, the big, bad heel. Wahoo McDaniel, many of you know who that is. He told his mom, I want to be a professional wrestler. I wonder what that conversation went like. Or what she was thinking at the time. Well, fast forward on into Sean's life. Sean uh, started training. And he got to be a part of a wrestling organization. Not only that, but Sean got to be part of a place called Mid-South Wrestling. Now, to get all those details in between from his teenage years, check out the book. Read along with us. But I'm going to fast forward when he got his first chance to wrestle for Mid-South Wrestling. Big wrestling company with Bill Watts, Cowboy Bill Watts. And what I'm going to talk to you about first is Sean hanging out with a couple of guys g- that go by the name of the Rock and Roll Express, Ricky Morton and Robert Gibson. Now, growing up, I was a fan of the Rock and Roll Express. For one, I was a I was an NWA fan. I remember watching NWA with my with my father. And I remember the Rock and Roll Express, they were the cool hip tag team and they to me, were they were my favorites, the Rock and Roll Express. I got to meet Ricky Morton a couple of years ago, and it was right before he was inducted into the WWE Hall of Fame. Such a cool guy, such a laid-back guy, very nice. Uh, but Ricky and Robert were some influences on Shawn Michaels early in his career. He started riding with Ricky and Robert to towns to wrestle. And they were really giving him the advice that he needed to make it in the wrestling business. And so later on into the book on page 68, actually, I'm going to read a little bit of what it was like uh, riding with them and then meeting Terry Taylor. We know him as the Red Rooster from WWE many years ago. But check this out, what Sean says. He says, after a few weeks of riding with Ricky and Robert, Terry Taylor came up to me and he said, I know you were driving around with the Rock and Roll Express, but if you want to ride with me sometime, I'd love to drive with you and help you out. Most people didn't get this when they broke in, but I did. That's why I think Mid-South was the greatest place to start my career. One of the reasons I was able to become so good so fast was because of the way people like Terry Taylor helped me. Terry was what everyone called a white meat baby face. That means a good guy, okay? A young, good-looking guy who fought from behind and needed the crowd to support him. I envisioned myself as eventually taking on that role. And I looked to Terry for any advice he could give me. Now, he goes on to say that Ricky and Robert, the Rock and Roll Express, acclimated him to the wrestling culture they helped him to, uh, to know how to behave in that kind of business, in that kind of world, because it was different than anything he'd ever experienced before, and really different than me and you, anything we could ever possibly imagine or experience. But Terry Taylor helped him understand how to exactly work in the ring, the psychology of it, how to be that good guy, how to show emotion and when not to show emotion. Terry told him to mix things up. Instead of of you giving the other guy a tackle at the beginning of every match, maybe he gives you one first. Then you bounce up like you didn't expect it. Keep the fans on their toes. So Terry had a passion for the psychology, the art of the wrestling business. Sean could see it. Sean felt comfortable asking Terry Taylor, Question after question after question. Terry told him, learn the business, learn how to work in the wrestling ring. That's the most important thing. He goes on to say, I was wrestling every night and had plenty of opportunities to experiment. And there was no, how does this make me look attitude. I wasn't worried about a particular move making me look stupid. I looked at every move within the context of of the entire match. Terry taught me how to take everything in its totality. Sean says it's just like scripture. If you take passages out of context, they don't make sense. Judas, one of Jesus' disciples, went out and hanged himself. Sean says that doesn't mean go out and hang yourself. So take things in context, learn the moves and the psychology of the business in context. And so that's one reason. In my opinion, Shawn Michaels is the greatest in-ring performer of all time. Now, there's some of you out there that will that probably disagree with that, but that's okay. That's one good thing about this show. We can disagree and still have fun with each other, right? So, Shawn Michaels, <clears throat> excuse me. Shawn Michaels got his 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 learning from mid-south wrestling. But he was trained by Jose Lothario. Now, Jose Lothario is well-known in the wrestling business. And Sean says he was magnificent. So check this out, okay? Things were get, beginning to pick up, Sean says. And Jose wanted his career to really take off and go to another level. Sean says, Jose, not long, not too long after he came back to San Antonio, Fred Berend wanted to become my agent. That wasn't what Fred called it, but he wanted to take 10% of me. Fred was going to get me all the places I wanted to be. All I had to do was sign a piece of paper, give him 10%. However, Jose told me not to do it, so I didn't. Jose was always looking out for me. He would he would let me learn and struggle. But when the time was right, he let me know it was time to move on. Jose didn't make a huge deal of the situation or tell me that I was being screwed out of anything. He just said it was time to go on. One thing Jose didn't do was stir things up. Now, this is important right here. He said he told me we needed to put a tape together and send one to the WWF. And send one to the American Wrestling Association, the AWA. Those were the places I needed to be. We knew the Rock and Roll Express and a ton of young baby faces were wrestling in the National Wrestling Alliance, the N.W.A., and I wouldn't have much of a chance getting in there. So we made the tapes and sent them to the other two big organizations. Well, the A.W.A. called back, and they told Jose they wanted me. They were losing a lot of their wrestlers to Vince, so they were desperate for talent. I was going to leave, but first I had to talk with my partner, Paul. When I told him I was leaving, he was a little hurt about being left behind, but he understood. I wanted to become a singles wrestler. That was my goal in going to the AWA. I had no idea they wanted to put me in another tag team. Everything was Paul. Uh, everything with Paul was on the up and up. It was a chance to work for a much bigger company on a much bigger stage. He knew I had to go. Now, at this point, Sean had already met Marty Jannetty. And Marty Janetti was a huge baby face, a uh, big, really good guy. But Marty was in Kansas City. So before Sean went to AWA, he was wrestling in Kansas City after leaving Mid-South Wrestling. And the booker of that territory was an, a man named Bob Brown. Okay? Sean first saw Marty Janetti in the locker room where he introduced himself, shook his hand. But Sean says that meeting new people, it was an issue for him. And I I guess it could stem from him being so uh, shy as a kid, as a teenager. I don't know. But he walked into the Kansas City locker room for the first time, and he said there was tension. Even though I had been a wrestling for a while, I didn't feel like a member of the fraternity there. It was going—it like going to another school. It doesn't ma- matter how many times you'll know you'll make friends. The first two weeks are sort of uncomfortable. But in a week or two, Marty came up to me as I was dressing in the locker room. He said, hey, Dave, talking about Dave Peterson, and I have been talking. We see something in you. Sean said, thanks. Well, Marty says, why don't you start traveling with us? And Sean said, okay. He looked at me and he said, there's something in you that's just dying to get out and we're going to get it out. Now, Sean started hanging out with Dave and Marty Jannetty. They would go to the bars. Even if Sean couldn't get in, Dave and Marty didn't care. Sean says they would find another bar to get into. He says they didn't do anything crazy. Sean says that it was nothing compared to what we would later do in the AWA and the WWE. For me, it was my first time experiencing going out with the boys and having fun. None of us had real responsibilities. We worked seven shows a week and traveled all over Missouri, Iowa, Kansas, Nebraska, Illinois for a spot show. When we were driving from town to town, we talked wrestling all the time. Marty had a passion for the business, as I did, and we did the best we could to smarten each other up. Now, Marty Janetti and Shawn Michaels, my first experience in watching them was the WWE, WWF, right? And as was for many of you. Now, some of you listening may remember watching the AWA on ESPN and you saw Marty and Shawn as the Midnight Rockers. I never got to see that. Now, later on, I, I remember seeing ESPN and, and watching USWA in Texas, and and I, I, I remember some AWA, but I was never a big fan. I was just, I just wasn't drawn into it like I was because WW, WWF at the time, that's what I was watching, and the NWA. That's what I was uh, watching on Saturdays with my dad. So, AWA, Marty Jannetty, And Shawn Michaels, that's where they really formed their tag team. And that's what we're going to talk about later. But check this out. Ric Flair was an idol to Shawn Michaels. And he actually got to meet him in Kansas City. uh, Shawn says he came to defend his NWA World Championship against Harley Race. I saw him at the arena and I was like, it's Ric Flair. He looked exactly like he did on TV the suit, the gold watch. He looked like a champion. Since there were separate dressing rooms for the heels and the faces, that means good guys and bad guys. I didn't get to see him that much. I passed him in the hallway and I got the high and the handshake. I watched his match, then headed to Diana's local bar. I was standing there with a few other guys when Ric Flair came in. He walked up to the bar and he sat down. That's when I strolled over to him and said something like, Good match tonight. I didn't give him the, I think you're the greatest of all time. I, I, you know, I didn't want to sound like a big mark. He said, thanks, and then asked if I wanted a beer. Yes, sir, that would be great. He bought me a beer, and then I went back to the group of guys I was hanging out with. I don't even remember getting a bill that night. None of us did, and we drank all night. Ric Flair picked up the tab for all of us. That's the way he was. Everything is on the nature. Woo! Now, I've heard that many times as well. And for those of you smart fans out there, you, you know that as well, that Ric Flair would buy everybody in the bar a round of drinks. It was common. It was normal. That's what Flair did. Be kind of cool, though, to get Ric Flair to buy you a drink, right? Well, that gives you a little insider info to Sean meeting Marty. Now, they didn't become the tag team that we know them as until the AWA, which, fast forward, is what I was talking about a little earlier when he went to the uh, American Wrestling Association. Now, looking at Shawn's career at the beginning, it's like anything. You get your feet wet. You learn what to do, what not to do, what to say, when to say it, and what not to say. The AWA is associated with, of course, Vern Gagne and Greg Gagne. And when Sean went up there, he was making some more money, and he was on TV, ESPN. Okay? That was a big deal back then. And for Sean, that was a big deal he bought a car and not only any car but he got a maroon 300 ZX he said uh, that with the AWA he was gonna make something like five to six hundred bucks a week and that was pretty good back then especially for a young guy starting out in the business and like I said earlier Sean, in my opinion, is the greatest in-ring performer of all time. And the way he got there were the influences of Ricky Morton, Robert Gibson, the Rock and Roll Express, Terry Taylor, Marty Jannetty. And so I want to read a couple of things for you right now about his time with the A.W.A. Marty and I had talked about teaming up and what we were, what we might do. I had moved into the same apartment complex where he was living, talking about Marty. We talked wrestling all the time. Greg Gagne, he wanted to call us the Country Rockers. After thinking about it, we agreed that it didn't work. I was still listening to Judas Priest at the time, and I really dug a song of theirs called Living After Midnight. I told Marty... This was the perfect music for us to maybe come out to. We should call ourselves the Midnight Rockers. We started thinking about what we were going to wear. At the time, Marty was wearing long tights, fur tiger stripes, a tiger stripe around his boots. I liked that, and I told him that's what we should go with. We were a little concerned that we might be seen as blatantly stealing from the Rock and Roll Express, but... We reasoned that since we since they were Spandex and didn't wear the tiger straps, we were okay. Now, Marty and I started a short time later and he says I have to admit that the first time we came out to our music, I felt awkward. I felt a bit awkward. Marty could get out there and pump up the crowd and dance. He was already doing the I'm pretty cool gimmick. I couldn't dance. And I'd always been the white meat baby face. I remember being all over wanting to come out to the music. But when it first came on and I had to go to the ring, I felt like I had two left feet. Sean says that he had to get into his character. He had to learn that there's more to wrestling than just working in the ring. I had to learn the character. I had to get into that character, the character of the Midnight Rockers. It wasn't just about going out there and 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 doing some clotheslines. In other words, so Marty had or Marty was a huge influence in that. He helped Sean learn how to work that crowd walking from the backstage to the ring because you know what? That's a big deal. And if you look at the WWE today, it's a huge deal for those uh, superstars to walk down that ramp, and it's a huge deal for certain songs to play because. The songs really, they draw us in as fans. One of my favorite songs and entrances is Randy Orton's song. And that entrance theme, since the first time I heard it, I I love that song. I hear voices, you know? And so, uh, I hear voices in my head. That right there draws me in. And, of course, I'm a Randy Orton fan, too, because I think he's one of the best in the business ever. But I love that song, and it really paints a picture of what Randy Orton is all about, the Viper. You see what I mean? So certain songs that come out for certain superstars, they do. Those songs paint a picture of who that superstar is. And later on in in Sean's life and career, he came out to Sexy Boy, which he still uses today. When he makes special appearances because that song paints that picture of Shawn Michaels, especially when Shawn was a heel, when he was a bad guy. That song really made you want to hate him even more because he's being cocky and arrogant in the song. All right? <laughs> well, later on, of course, they they started getting really good, the, rock, the Midnight Rockers, Marty and Shawn. Shawn says, our work resulted in some newfound publicity with Pro Wrestling Illustrated. Big big magazine back in the day. He says they wrote an article on us, and they used an inset picture of us on the cover. The title read, "From in, From Imitators to Innovators. It was an acknowledgment that we were not just ripping off the Rock and Roll Express, but had developed a whole new style. That article was a very big deal. It told us, in quotes, we're making it. We're making it. So, Sean and Marty had a big effect on tag team wrestling. They were doing things other people weren't doing. And it goes on to say in the book that he, he met Sherry Martell. and says she was great. A super person. And the people that he met, who would later be in the WWE, were from the AWA. Does anyone know... Who else was in the AWA? That's right. Hulkamania himself. Before going to the WWF, Hulk Hogan was in the AWA. And the reason I say all that is because many big stars left AWA for the greener pastures of the WWE and Vince McMahon. Many wrestlers. Kurt Henning. Mr. Perfect one of my all-time favorite wrestlers, and I mean that. He was my, and I grew up a, a loving bad guys. I still do. I love the heels. Well, as I close out this part of our show, I want to read a little bit about what ribbing is, being a river, being a jokester, being a prankster. Marty Jannetty was one of those. He was a river. He never stayed still and was always up to something. I actually wasn't that big of a river, but I was his partner. And for the eight years I was with Marty, we were the rockers. There was no individuality. I don't mean to imply that I was lily white. I enjoyed the ribs and probably would have done more if I'd have been better at pulling them off. I just wasn't that good at it. Certainly not as good as Marty, Mr. Perfect, Kurt Henning, or the bad guy. Rezo Ramon Scott Hall, who is also from the AWA. Okay, I'm gonna give you an example of what ribbing was with Marty Gennetti. Marty he loved to pull ribs on the people in the office at the AWA. Check this out, this is pretty cool. We would do interviews during the week during the week in Minneapolis, and whenever Larry Nelson, or, or the announcer that at that time with AWA, when he would finish an interview. He would put the microphone down. Marty would then go over and disconnect the mic from the cord. Larry would come back to do another interview, and of course, his mic wouldn't work. Larry never varied his routine, and Marty pulled the cord out every time. It's not that big a deal once, but after so many times, Larry would go, Come on, Jannetty. Rockers, stop it. He'd do it every week, and every week would be left until it hurt. We also like to get Greg Gagne. Greg wrote with a pencil, and whenever he'd put one down, we'd take it and hide it. He'd bring out another one, and we'd take that one too once he put it down. One day we got Greg so hot, he brought a whole big stack out. But we were determined, and we ended up taking all of his pencils, sharpening them down to half inch nubs, and frustrating the heck out of Greg. Kurt Henning was big on locks. This is cool. He'd put a padlock on everything. One time in Sioux Falls, Marty and I were on last. When Scott and Kurt were on last, Marty would hide their bags. This time Henning saw an opportunity for revenge. We came back after our match and couldn't find our bags. It turns out Kurt and Scott had chained them to the pipes above the dressing room, and we had to get someone to cut them free. All of these pranks came naturally to Marty. He didn't have to think about it that much. There were times when I would be hanging out in the back, and I'd hear Kurt and Scott start cussing because he hid their bags. I didn't even know he hid it. Everyone was always grilling me about what happened, and I would honestly say, I don't know. They wouldn't believe me. You guys are too much, they'd say. I sp- spent a lot of years saying, I don't know. I'm not sure if people thought I was just lying. Now, I want to read one more little example uh, of ribbing and that Sean writes about. He says, one night in Milwaukee, Kurt got Nick Bockwinkle pretty good. Any of you know who Nick Nick Bockwinkle is. Nick wore these big old glasses that he actually needed to see. While he was out wrestling, Kurt put a lock right in the middle of them. It's one thing to do it to our sunglasses, but Sean goes on to say it's another to put one on someone's real glasses. We wondered what he was going to do on the four-hour ride home, and we laughed, imagining him sitting in his seat and holding the lock up with one hand while he drove. Nick had to know that it was one of the four of us who did it, but he wasn't confrontational. He'd say something like, Ah, Marty, very good, boys, very classy. We're all mature here. Way to go. Very good. If the, pla- if the padlock on the glasses was a borderline thing to do, what Marty did to Nick not so long afterwards definitely crossed the line. Kurt had been the AWA champion, and he was our friend. He deserved it and was doing well, but Nick wanted the title back, and he got it from Kurt. Now, it was about this time that Buddy Rose and Kurt started teaching us about wrestling politics. Now, this is very interesting for those of you that are into the 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 behind-the-scenes, the business culture of it. when we were now very anti-office talking about him and Marty we were anti-office anti the the guys in the office what the, the rules and all that stuff you know they were young and, and they believe they they had this uh belief that the the older guys didn't really get what they were doing so they were disconnected really when we heard that Nick wanted the belt back we were like, They're keeping us down. They're out to screw us. And guys, this is real life. This is real stories. This wasn't a storyline on TV. Of course, I had no basis for my complaints, but I had gone down the path of bitterness. I was going to complain about everything now. Vern wasn't a good guy to work for, and he was a mean-spirited man. I didn't have much interaction with him, but the few times I did, it wasn't very positive. We were angry. Marty decided to do something for Kurt Henning. It was wintertime. We were doing our Wednesday promos in Minneapolis. Nick was there. He had finished a set of interviews. He set the championship belt down, walked away. Marty picked up the belt, rushed to the side door of the studio, proceeded to uh, to leave it behind, or to heave it behind some bushes and into five feet of snow. When Nick came back, couldn't find the belt. He complained. Nick and Greg Gagne went right to Marty and told him in no uncertain terms he better give the belt back. Marty claimed he didn't. He had nothing to do with. Or, or, excuse me. Getting tongue twisted. Marty claimed that he had he hadn't done anything. He did nothing with the belt. Didn't know what they were talking about. However, I saw him do it. I actually saw him do it. So when they asked me about it, I told them I didn't know what happened. I asked Marty later if he had done it. He fessed up. <laughs> I Oh, I'm sorry. Sean says I actually hadn't seen him do it. So, when later on he asked Marty, Marty fessed up. I think everyone knew Marty did it because no one else would have done something like that, because that was a pretty big rip. However, he was never fined or suspended because nobody could prove anything. Nobody ever found the belt. Nick had to go around for at least a month as the champion with no belt. I think it made Kurt feel good, though, because every night for a while, Nick would walk out without the belt. So, you know, these are just ribs and examples of ribs because we're going to talk about ribs in this podcast because there's many stories out there in some of these books that have been written by these superstars that talk about ribbing people. Some went so far as to people got in some big trouble. And I can't wait to share some of those stories, you know, later on. I can't wait to share them. But, you know, that first year, Sean made about thirty thirty nine thousand dollars with the A.W.A. And he says they could tell the the territory was struggling and the WWF was kicking their tail at the time. And everybody wanted to work for Vince. Uh, Mr. Perfect, Mr. Kurt Henning had already gone there. All that stuff and you know how the story goes. They ended up, of course, making their way to WWE. But before we get there, I want to tell you thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this week's show. And I hope I've told you a lot of things you didn't know. And I hope I was able to captivate you enough to come back next Friday to listen to another part of the Shawn Michaels story. Now, next week, it gets really, really interesting because they make their way to the big leagues, the WWF at the time. You get to hear about how they got fired just a couple of weeks of being there, and then of course they come back and they become really, really famous as the Rockers. They get to they they appear in a few WrestleManias. We talk about that. We talk about them splitting up. We talk about the fighting. We talk about the infamous uh, barbershop segment on TV with Brutus the Barber Beefcake, where Sean kicks Marty through a window. How many of you remember that? I remember that clear as day, like it was yesterday. I do, watching it as a kid, and I was blown away. Of course, I was pulling for Marty because Sean turned his back on him, and as a kid, even though I was a fan of bad guys, I wasn't a big fan of Sean at this point. I didn't understand why he would turn his back on Marty Jannetty, the Rockers. Well, guys, be sure you go to our Facebook page. It's facebook.com forward slash the Books of Pro Wrestling podcast. If you go to there, be sure you like it. And each week, I'll and just about every day, I'll post something, either a question, a trivia question, a did you know, uh, and I'll ask for your opinions, your comments, and I want to read these on the air. So next Friday... I plan on reading some of these comments that you have left on our Facebook page. Now, let me go there real quick and just give you kind of an idea of what to expect. Uh, and this is also a way for us to debate each other because I love debates as long as they're done in fun. And that's what I'm all about. Guys, I'm not some... Uh, Stickler about all this I want to have fun with you I want to have fun with all you guys In in Ireland, the UK, Australia Here in the United States Wherever you are in the world listening Oh and my friends up in Canada as well Got a lot of people From Canada locking the page But I want to just you know hang out with y'all Talk about some of these things And I want it to be different than any other Wrestling organization Out there Uh, One thing I put on this week was it was a post from pwinsider.com and it's talking about Flair and Steamboat, two of the greatest wrestlers of all time. Am I right? Well, we all know for those of us that kept up with it in the late 80s, even early 90s, Flair and Steamboat were the were two of the biggest rivals in wrestling, even to this day in wrestling history. If you want to if you're learning how to wrestle or you want to be a professional wrestler, my suggestion is go check out Some Flair and Steamboat matches. Well, here's what the post said. It said, 1994, at a WCW television taping at the Center Stage Theater in Atlanta, Georgia, Ric Flair defeated Ricky Steamboat to win back the WCW world title, which had been held up following the double pin finish of a match between the two at the Spring Stampede pay-per-view. This match in Atlanta would air on WCW Saturday night. It would be the final match between Steamboat and Flair. Man, that brings back some nostalgia, doesn't it? And I said, in your opinion, are the matches Flair had with Steamboat some of the greatest of all time? And, of course, we had some great answers. Here's one answer from Brad. Steamboat and Flair were two of the greatest ever in professional wrestling history. Both could wrestle 60 minutes, which is a lost art in today's industry. Some of you who are newer fans, an hour might seem like an eternity for you. But back then, back then, especially in the 80s, an hour-long match was normal. That was the norm. And I'll give you a trivia right here. What two superstars had an hour-long match at a WrestleMania main event? See if you know what that is. Email me. Let me know. Uh, you can email me at thebooksofprowrestlingpodcast.com. Scroll down, and you'll see the little uh, name, email little form that you submit and I get those emails. I read every email. And so, uh, let me know who that was. Who are the two superstars that had that hour long main event match at a WrestleMania? Okay. And of course, other comments to that post were, uh, wow, that is old school right there. Uh, Ricky Steamboat was one what was my mom's favorite wrestler. Um, also another comment that I'll, Uh, Read, if I can find it. Oh, la, 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 la. I just lost it because there's so many comments to read. Another comment was from Yancey. And Yancey also chimed in, I believe, if I can find it. Oh, great picks. Great pics. And because he said great pics were great pictures it's because on these posts, I, I dig up some of the really the coolest vintage pictures of some of these superstars wrestling. And so on that post, I found some really awesome old school pictures of flair and steamboat wrestling. And it just paints a picture in your mind of what it was like back then in 1994 and 1989. Well, please do me a favor. Hit that subscribe button. Let's grow this book club together. Let's have some fun together. Get on Facebook, like us, debate with each other, have some fun. I want I want to have so much fun with y'all. I can't even uh, express that enough. But tell your friends about us. Share the statuses on Facebook. And I really would like it if you'd give me that five-star rating. That grows this podcast because you're part of it. If you have subscribed, you're part of this movement with me. Let's get the largest book club going. And yeah, it's a book club for us wrestling fans. (laughs) We are all children at heart when it comes to wrestling. I love the nostalgia. I love going back in time and throwing it back. Have a great week. Hang out with me on Facebook this week. Check us out. Hit that subscribe button. Write a quick review on the podcast app that you're on. Help me out. Let's grow it together. Enjoy the, the post on Facebook. Enjoy this show. And I'll be right back here next Friday with part two of the Shawn Michaels story as we dive into the Rockers, the WWF, WrestleManias that they were a part of, and the uh, and, and the split that Shawn and Marty had. That's all next Friday right here on the Books a pro wrestling podcast signing off. Dr. Jones. See ya.